This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2021, 235 million people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the people affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today I'm speaking with Professor Adrian Gale. Professor Adrian Gale is a postdoctoral fellow in Arts and Sciences at the University of Virginia and holds research affiliations at the Global Policy Center at the Batten School of Public Policy and in the Department of English. She specializes in the modern and contemporary novel and environmental humanities. She's particularly interested in how the novel can speak to urgent global challenges. As a member of UVA's Humanitarian Collaborative, she's been working on a project about the issues of fiction for humanitarian advocacy. Welcome, Adrian. How are you? Thank you very much, Ruth. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. <laughs> and I'm really, really excited to speak to you today. We've spoken a little bit before about your own work which i admire a lot um and first before we get into the book which we'll talk about exit west i'm really interested to hear about your own work how you started looking at this question of fiction for humanitarian advocacy so there 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 are probably you know two or three different origins for uh this project uh, one of them is that I'm, I was just interested in the claims that many different people have made in, in different disciplines for literature's capacity to increase empathy in readers. But actually, it was also a chance encounter with um, Kirsten Gelsdorf, who is the co-director of the Global Policy Center at the Batten School at UVA. And she said, oh, well, you know, what what do you do? What do you teach? And I said, well, I, I teach one course on on whether reading literature can make you more ethical. And she said, you know, I never thought about literature as a, a tool in the toolbox for something like humanitarian advocacy. We're, we're interested in photojournalism. We use different media. And it had never occurred to me that that might be something we should think about. And I said, well, one of the things that immediately springs to mind is that social media and photojournalism, you know, the temporality involved and people engage with it is maybe just a few seconds, maybe 30 seconds if you're lucky. But the temporality, the kind of length of exposure to stories can be hours or days or even weeks. And so you're entwined with other people's lives for a different span of time. And it, that in and of itself is a different engagement. I said, so that, that I think has real potential. So she said, would you be interested in writing a white paper for OCHA. Um, and uh, I said, well, rather than write, write, a, write a white paper where I would give you my recommendations, why don't I do one better? Why don't I turn the question into a class and take the class I have been teaching and actually look at uh, the refugee crisis, displacement, literature of displacement, and ask these questions through a class? Because I'm guessing that, you know, these young 18-year-olds these sort of passionate young people are the audience that you want to be be targeting, right? They're the ones full of ideas about changing the world. That was the origin of the course. 
which became the novel in the refugee crisis. Right. And what are some of the initial, I don't, I don't even know if I should call them findings, but what are you yeah. hearing? To put it really briefly, there were three things that were impressed upon me. One I've already touched on, which is time. The fact that they were engaging these stories over seven weeks and had committed right to two months of thinking about this was itself, uh, I think, helpful for them. It was formative for them. They said, you know, we're returning to these questions again and again through different books each week. And this in and of itself is helping us develop our ideas and our interest and our connection to these characters. And second, I'm using the word characters because they really did find that fiction was really deeply meaningful for them in terms of forging some sense of connection to the refugee crisis or displaced, internally displaced people um, in a much bigger way because fiction to them was both offering them characters that were deeply compelling. And what was interesting to me was that they were most, they felt most connected to the stories in which displacement or becoming a refugee was only a small portion of the story. They were really committed, shall we say, to characters who were fully fleshed out, autonomous, funny, powerful, interesting. And then they could see some continuity, especially with younger characters, between those characters and their own lives. And then when they were forced into situations through uh, war, conflict, situations that were larger than their own lives and were essentially kind of earthquakes in their lives, they felt a sense of injustice towards the characters. So they weren't starting uh, from a place of sort of, um, let's say, pitying or sort of characters of objection, right, that they should feel some sympathy toward. Rather, they felt sympathy for characters who seemed as complex, powerful, unique, and interesting as they saw themselves and their friends. And there's also something that I would say that I think is, you know, maybe ethically problematic in that, right? Because we don't necessarily want to have students only care about those people who look like themselves, right? <laughs> right? But perhaps it, it would be more generous to say that they felt that there was some sense of continuity or something that they could hold on to that didn't look so radically other because these people had um, fiction allowed for a very multifaceted view of their lives, right? Not necessarily that they were like them, but they were as complex as they were, right? And, and they liked the idea of rooting for people, right? Wanting them to succeed, wanting to see them um, you know, to have some sort of um, meaningful relation to these 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 characters was borne out in wanting them to wanting to see what happened to them, shall we say? And um, I I think that there's some really interesting there is some interesting work done on fiction versus nonfiction that talks about uh, the fact that f nonfiction stories can be very overwhelming, right? That people want to look away. And there is an aspect to fiction that does allow you to be immersed and to come with a sense of willingness to be open to the story and to take pleasure in it, even if it's not about pleasurable circumstances. 
Right. So I think there's all there are there's that all of those things sort of come together, came together in a powerful way. And the third thing I'll say is that the style of reading is important. And one of the things I've always found unconvincing about scholars who think about literature and ethics is they're thinking about the unit of the solitary reader alone in her room, somehow being magically moved by the thing on the page. And it was the fact that they were reading collectively and talking about that and pushing each other. The collectivity was really important for them in their self-reporting for why they came to care about these characters and why they actually felt really compelled to do something as a result of that collect collective nature. Right, right. And maybe this is a good um, moment for us to actually get into Exit West. Um, this is a book written by Mohsin Hamid, and actually you recommended it to me as we, and so I read it actually just uh, ahead of the, to prepare for this, uh, for our conversation, and I absolutely enjoyed the book. First, tell me, what is this book about? So this is a book that uh, was written just a few years ago, um, and uh, the author also wrote The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which your readers might be familiar with. And it's about two people. It's really a love story between Nadia and Said, who are in an unnamed Middle Eastern country. And magical doors start to appear at the moment of some sort of political crisis. We're not exactly sure what it is, but... Um, Nadia and Saeed decide to walk through the doors to another life. And what's really interesting about this is that many, many stories of migration focus on the journey. And this one doesn't at all. It focuses on departure and arrival. And the journey itself is compressed to walking through a door. And that in and of itself is a really interesting choice. Yeah, I'm going to read from one of the, it's the opening chapter. As Saeed's email was being downloaded from a server and read by his client far away in Australia, a pale-skinned woman was sleeping alone in the Sydney neighbourhood of Surrey Hills. Her husband was in Perth on business. The woman wore only a long T-shirt, one of his, and a wedding ring. Her torso and left leg were covered by a sheet even paler than she was. Her right leg and right hip were bare. On her right ankle, perched in the dip of her Achilles tendon, was the blue tattoo of a small mythical bird. Sorry, mythological bird. Her home was alarmed, but the alarm was not active. It had been installed by previous occupants, by others who had once called this place home, before the phenomenon referred to as the gentrification of this neighborhood had run as far as it had now run. The sleeping woman used the alarm only sporadically, mostly when her husband was absent. But on this night, she had forgotten. Her bedroom window, four meters above the ground, was open, just a slit. In the drawer of her bedside table were a half-full packet of birth control pills, last consumed three months ago, when she and her husband were still trying not to conceive. Passports, checkbooks, receipts, coins, keys, and a pair of handcuffs, and a few paper-wrapped sticks of unchewed chewing gum. The door to her closet was open. Her room was bathed in the glow of her computer charger and wireless router, but the closet doorway was dark, darker than night, a rectangle of complete darkness, the heart of darkness, and out of this darkness a man was emerging. He too was dark, with dark skin and dark woolly hair. He wriggled with great effort, 
his hands gripping either side of the doorway as though pulling himself up against gravity or against the rush of a monstrous tide. His neck followed his head, tendons straining, and then his chest, his half-unbuttoned sweaty gray and brown shirt. Suddenly he paused in his exertions. He looked around the room. He looked at the sleeping woman, the shut bedroom door, the open window. He rallied himself again, fighting mightily to come in, but in desperate silence, the silence of a man struggling in an alley, on the ground, late at night, to free himself of hands cl clenched around his throat. But there were no hands around this man's throat. He wished only not to be heard. With a final push he was through, trembling and sliding to the floor like a newborn foal. He lay still, spent, tried not to pant. He rose. His eyes rolled terribly. Yes, terribly. Or perhaps not so terribly. Perhaps they merely glanced about him, at the woman, at the bed, at the room. Growing up in the not infrequently perilous circumstances in which he had grown up, he was aware of the fragility of his body. He knew how little it took to make a man into meat. The wrong blow, the wrong gunshot, the wrong flick of a blade, turn of a car, presence of a microorganism in a handshake, a cough. He was aware that alone, a person is almost nothing. The woman who slept, slept alone. He who stood above her, stood alone. The bedroom door was shut. The window was open. He chose the window. He was through it in an instant, dropping silkily to the street below. Thank you, and thank you. And so, what's going on in this, in what you have just read? So this is the first scene in which we're introduced to the doors. And I really love it because it compresses so many of the themes and the issues in the book um, in a really elegant way. And one of the things that my students remarked upon, almost all of them actually, across the classes, is that it looks as though it's a scene of home invasion. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a white woman in bed. There's a man with dark skin coming through a dark doorway. And of course, we see that the reversal, right, that Mohsen Hamid is trying to get us to think about and to think through and why we see this as a moment of invasion. And what he, by the end of the scene, we've realized, or, you know, this is something that my students talk about a lot, that in fact, the, the preconceptions that many of them are bringing to the scene are completely destroyed by the scene. In fact, the person who is vulnerable, the person whose body is at risk of harm is not the white woman. The white woman is fine. She has keys, money, receipts, access to birth control, health care, right? She's propertied. She's, she's a middle-class woman. She's not the vulnerable one. It's the man coming through the door who's desperately trying not to be heard and to be able to move through the scene without being injured himself. And so the reversal of who's vulnerable and what sorts of images many in you know North American society are presented with in terms of which bodies are vulnerable, which persons we should empathize with, whom we should be afraid for, are totally reversed in this scene. Yeah. And here you mentioned empathy again. Maybe this is the third time also at the beginning when we were talking about this idea of literature creating, you know, making a reader empathetic um, and here for this character. And many of the characters in the book are not really named because I think we have only two names, Said and Nadia, all the other characters, we don't know their names. 
But again, here, you know, you mentioned this, we feel empathy for this character. How does Hamid really do this throughout the book? Yeah, it's a really good question. And and I will say that I I think that empathy is a problematic word. I mean, I use it in, in, in lieu of another because there isn't a very good word to encompass all of the different uh, feelings and emotions, stirrings and interest. But I will say that to some extent, I prefer saying that students feel a connection to rather than saying empathy for, not just because empathy implies um, sort of feeling like someone, but I think in some ways that it's the connection to the the characters that is a complex of different things. It has empathy, it has sympathy, it has concern, maybe some confusion about what's happening, you know, that, that it's all the kind of complex web of of feelings that are connecting you to the characters, even if maybe your position isn't entirely clear as the reader. Let's say put into a meaningful relation, if for lack of a better word. But I think that that Hamid does it in a in a couple of ways that the students themselves, and I'm I'm just sort of ventriloquizing them here, say that you know the reason they care about the characters, not just the named ones, but the unnamed ones is because, in part, because the the connections that he's asking you to draw, right, are to see yourself as somehow part of this new world order in which everybody is on the move and everybody is connected to everyone else. And there's no such thing as distance anymore, that there's a kind of rushing up of the proximity of all the people in the world somehow having access to everyone else. And that that actually fundamentally ch- re- sort of changes or re- organizes the way that you see relations working in the novel and then maybe also how you see relations to people who might who exist outside of the novel but are to some extent represented say allegorically or in some kind of parallel but but the other thing to say is that students love they love the two main characters Nadia and Saeed Uh, I think one of my students said it best when she said you know Nadia is just a badass I just love seeing what happens to her and how she navigates the situation. She's just so incredible. Now, we were talking about Nadia, and, and at the beginning of the, um, the interview, there was also, I think, one of the thoughts you, you had in mind talking about literature is this question of relating, being able to relate to the characters. And the story, when it starts off, you know, we meet both you know, Nadia and Saeed, and, you know, we see this connection, he asks her out. Um, but at the same time, we also have the background of what is likely to be happening, so, so, so whether it's conflict or violence or a political crisis. Having seen these two characters before they took the doors, what part does that play really in connecting uh, the readers to these two characters? Yeah, it's a really good point. And... Um... To go back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about the students really connecting to the characters uh, in the moments in which they were not displaced, they had not yet become refugees. They had become invested in them because they were trying to figure out how to date and see each other and experimenting with drugs and arguing with their parents and trying to figure out what their lives would look like and go to school and start a new job. And so they became invested in, in the the characters' lives with this sort of threat of the political crisis that's looming, right? And then 
it bursts into their lives uh, in a you know in a particularly potent way, and they have to leave. And so the, the reader is already, you know, the readers that in the class, you know, we're already with them. We already really want to know what happens to them. And then this external event sort of forces them through the doors and they have to leave everything behind. So it was all the, the it was all the parts of the story that already individualized them, you know, made them complex humans, made them powerful and, you know, uh, valuable in the eyes of the readers and then they um, saw the displacement as as something that doesn't just happen to people who you know they have no relationship to potentially. Not not all of my students. I mean, I have had students who are themselves refugees, but I'm yeah. talking about the majority of of the class. For me, I think this idea that before you were displaced, before you dis dislocated, everyone they had a life. And we see Nadia and, and, and Saeed before all of this happens, they, they, you know, they, they, they were having these classes together, they were making plans. So when they leave, they are not just, you know, a body of, of refugees, because I think what tends to happen a lot is that they sort of become refugees okay. and uh, that sort of goes away a little bit in the book. Yeah, I agree with you. And it, and there was a really interesting study, um, a media analysis out of the London School of Economics that, that did a European press uh, content analysis of how refugees were described in the European press in 2015, 16, 17. And they said that um, even stories that were positive about refugees and migrants tended to de-individualize them tended to take away all of the sort of distinguishing characteristics that we associate with an individual or individual individuality. So that they tended to become just a mass of refugees rather than someone who was a dentist or someone's mother or brother or someone who was in school training to become a particular profession. And so all of the characteristics that fiction excels in, right, which is to individualize, to give you granular detail about people's lives, to show you what it is like for them to be in the world, that all those things were taken out of many of the media's representations. And so there's also storytelling that is happening in other media and forms, right, that is contributing to this sort of de-individualization, this sort of category of mass people, right? And, and that is what fiction excels in, is doing the opposite, is sort of pushing in the opposite direction. And I think that's really needed. Yeah. Now, one of the things, and I think you also mentioned it um, before we started the interview, but I was also listening to some of of the interviews uh, by, by the writer, by Mosin himself, and one of these ideas he has is about this, the future of the world. And I think in many ways he also argues when you listen to him, it's not the future of the world. It's already happening. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are also connected today yeah. and 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 I think in many ways which is the point you also make is that how do we accept this um as in many ways the new of uh, of living I wonder if you want to talk a bit about that and I know you also wanted to read an excerpt that really brings this point home so maybe this could be a good point to read that and then we can talk about that sure this is at the end of uh, chapter eight and the scene is uh that 
Nadia and Saeed have gone through the doors and they've eventually ended up in London. And they're part of a, a camp of migrants who have arrived in London through the doors and then the what are called the quote unquote natives, who are the people who are already living in London, um, have become very angry that the migrants are there squatting essentially in Kensington, which is in one of the most beautiful and wealthiest parts of the city. And so there's sort of there's sort of a rumbling thread of violence through a lot of the scenes in London. Um, and so <clears throat> this begins after this threat of violence starts to recede. It says, but a week passed, and then another, and then the natives and their forces stepped back from the brink. Perhaps they had decided they did not have it in them to do what would have needed to be done, to corral and bloody, and where necessary, slaughter the migrants, and had determined that some other way would have to be found. Perhaps they had grasped that the doors could not be closed, and new doors would continue to open, and they had understood that the denial of coexistence would have required one party to cease to exist, and the extinguishing party, too, would have been transformed in the process. And too many Native parents would not, after, have been able to look their children in the eye to speak with head held high of what their generation had done or perhaps the sheer number of places where there were now doors had made it useless to fight in any one. Now, and now can you just talk to me a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, I think this is, this is a wonderful moment of, of reversal because all through the book we've been cheering and sort of, you know, journeying alongside Nadia and Saeed and wondering what's going to happen to them. And they found you know, this moment in London where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. And then the natives begin to become increasingly hostile. Bricks are thrown. Um, people are starting to fear for their safety. Uh, and there's even some, you know, sort of military forces that are brought in. And then a kind of moment of realization happens where <laughs> the natives realize that if they're going to attack and potentially destroy the migrants, they're not going to reestablish the old social order, right? The old way of how the world used to be before this incredible uh, hyper-connection um, that the doors have made possible. And so they sort of, as it were, you know, give in to these forces that are bigger than themselves um, and that violence won't solve or resolve in any way, it won't change the new reality. And and I, I it's, it's a really nice moment because there is the realization that the violence on the part of the natives that the violence will transform them fundamentally and in really terrible ways. Um, so the so the violent the threat of violence recedes, but of course then you know the migration still continues. They don't stop in London; they keep moving. Um, so it it's not it's not an end point. It's just a realization of a different way of understanding one's place in the world and how the world is configured. And I think this is a really wonderful moment in the book because one of the arguments that a really um, interesting scholar made actually back in the 80s, Benedict Anderson, about the purpose of the novel was that the novel along with the newspaper enabled a sense of simultaneity of all these people who didn't know each other, um, but could sort of 
as it were, trust on faith that these hundreds of thousands of people who make up a nation um, were in fact part of the same community, were part of some kind of social uh, common. And what I think is really interesting about, about Hamid's book is that Benedict Anderson was really talking about the nation and what what the sense of sort of simultaneity, the sense of kind of intense proximity, the sense of interconnectedness that he's trying to show you with Exit West is 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 happening beyond the nation at the level of kind of a global community, but not in a kumbaya way. He's saying we are connected in these ways, and actually the idea that all these people are distant from us, right? is just not the case anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and also he uses social media as well to 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 really illustrate that point because we see yeah. you know I think when he was in uh, in Greece there I think through social media he ended up being connected to one of his friends um but also in fact even when they they meet again towards the end of the book Nadia and Said I believe they find each other through <laughs> social media and when there is this vacuum before they they leave their country, again it's through sort of you know the, the internet that 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 they connect. And I remember, which I see quite often these days, particularly in in areas of uh, where there's political crisis, this leaders just switching off internet yeah. to actually stop that connection. And of course, the internet was, is so important so, for sure. uh, people who are migrating right. because they, they're even designated people that, that help them move right across borders because their phone is connecting them right to resources and assistance. So the, the, that's also part of the picture. Um, and, and, you know, as a, you know, I'm also really interested in the book's idea of, um, you know, the, 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 the fact that the Arab Spring and the kind of long tail of that, the kind of the huge diaspora of the Middle East and the wars there. I'm half Egyptian, so you know I'm, I'm I have a sort of stake in, in to some extent in, in thinking about how the world has been reconfigured as a result of uh, you know many different political crises, wars, actions on the part of the American government is no small part of that picture. Um, and so thinking about how the world has been reconfigured and how we understand those connections is something that I'm also just thinking through for myself and my family and the and the and the Egyptian diaspora too. So I think it's a really it's one of the most powerful novels for my students, but I also think it's a very powerful novel for me because it gives, I think, what is an accurate picture of a different global order. No, absolutely. And then I think my other point, final point, and then, you know, we'll sort of wrap up. Uh, we have only a few minutes left. But this question of vulnerability, and you touched upon it in the first excerpt you read, but I also remember Nadia after she leaves Said, and she talks about this place where she works because she wears a booker, and they really look at her differently until mm -hmm. this gentleman tries to come and, and rob her and then they actually realize, oh, she's actually not <laughs> the enemy. And I remember yeah. going, wow, <laughs> I found that so powerful. But also how the booker itself, there's quite a theme around, again, you know, sexual violence against women. I remember I think when they're in the mass and this man is pushing himself against her. And there were all of these really 
things throughout the book that really just stopped you to you know to to think about um what that is like to be in that situation and 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 deal with that yeah and you know the way that nadia is introduced to us is as a person she rides a motorcycle right but she wears a full burqa and and she says you know her uh, saeed assumes that she's very devout and she says no i i wear it so men won't fuck with me yeah. and and students find that to be a moment where it never occurred to them that this might be a moment of kind of great empowerment and complex choices um my final question for you um how can we because i think one of the the challenges i find that i am really for me convinced of the the power of fiction to to drive action and change and and i think it has a lot of potential but one of the questions i'm always mulling over in my head which i'm hoping actually to dig deeper into as part of my project is how do you translate the reading into action? That is the, that is the million dollar question, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the people will say, scholars will say that the jury is really out on this with literature and that being able to even track it to see what elements of literature spurred action, what actions were actually taken, whether there's a causal relationship is very difficult to ascertain. But what I will say is that the students at the end of the course, because of the time we took, the fictions that we read, and the fact that they were reading collaboratively and arguing with each other, that what they came up with as a model, they they came up with because they really did feel very motivated to act as a result of reading these fictions of displacement and um, what action looked like. I had them sort of create a, a list of acts that they would take as a result. Everything from donating $5, liking something on social media, really easy, right? Very low stakes participation, all the way up to, you know, um, talking about uh, issues of displacement with their friends and relatives organizing a rally, writing to their congressperson, creating a club, a student club, volunteering with a, a refugee advocacy program in their community. And actually, they attested, many of them did, not all of them, but many of them attested that they would actually be very willing to do what, what I would consider to be time and labor intensive actions as a result of, of the, the course. Now, I will say that, of course, the students who opted to take the course are a self-selecting group, right? So we have to consider the, right. <laughs> you know, you're sort of preaching to the choir in some ways. But what they recommended, and I've sort of created with them this uh, uh, prototype, was to create a, a kind of a, a, an almost global uh, reading group, like a, a sort of a global book club in which everybody is reading at the same time and reading these works uh you know, sort of in a way using social media to be able to have conversations about them so that they feel that they are part of a community who's engaging with the ideas and talking with them and reading the fictions together. And that even sort of minimal sense of a collective group was part of the real strong motivation that, they, that all of a sudden they're not just one person trying to do something against what they see as a sort of a huge wave, right, of need and a kind of huge global challenge, but that they're all of a sudden in the class anyway, 
30 strong or 60 strong. And if you created a, a community that was even larger than that, you know, of 100,000 strong, then people feel very powerful. If we can come up with some way, you know, to, to harness the already, I think, you know, on fire world of the book club, whether that's Oprah's book club or the NEA, um, the National Endowment for the Arts or the New York book club, uh, but with recommendations for what people can do and to do collectively, that seemed to be the, the thing that, that spoke to them most for action. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adrian. This was really, really, really enjoyable. It's a really great conversation. Thanks so much, Ruth. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band.